0: keeping transit 100 cops that is this week the province announces a plan to recruit 100 extra cops to clean up transit and the city talks about what you can do to help with that or maybe just take a scooter instead they're back hi i'm troy i'm mac and we're speaking municipally back to Speaking Municipally, episode 215. This podcast will now no longer say we are a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, a locally grown community supported, because that podcast network is now, unfortunately, defunct.
1: Yeah, kudos to Karen and her team who have uh, built such an incredible thing over the last number of years. It turns out that it's not the most lucrative business, but it did have quite an impact on podcasts in uh, Alberta and in Edmonton. And so we're happy to be part of that. And we'll continue listening to all the great shows there. Uh, But instead of running APN ads, we're going to run our own ads that Taproot Edmonton sells. We haven't
0: quite sold a lot of those ads yet. So as part of today's rapid fire segment, we're going to pitch some potential advertisers to give us some money. This episode is brought to you by AIMCO, Alberta's investment branch. Have you ever wanted to gamble your future on incredibly solid, robust ventures, like going all in on a cryptocurrency pyramid scheme or betting on Donald Trump's 2020 election victory? Doesn't matter. We're doing it anyway, with your pension. AIMCO, thank God Alberta is cold, because otherwise our slush fund would melt. Speaking Municipally is presented by EPCOR.
1: Water is a basic necessity. Everyone needs it. That's why we're proud to have pipes constantly free-flowing like a fire hose to every house in Edmonton, and why we charge for it, and your newly privatized drainage infrastructure. Because we care about executive salary increases. Epcor, the
0: best fire hose, is the one to our CEO's bank account. This podcast would not be possible without support from Edmonton Farmers Markets. Shopping local is critical to a sustainable, vibrant economy, and Edmonton's farmers markets get it. With farmers market locations in downtown, in the core of Strathcona, and south side in an industrial area... All our markets have one thing in common. Edmonton farmers markets come for the parking. Well, Mac, the big news this week, of course, comes out of the province as Daniel Smith, our one true premier for at least the next little bit, announces 100 cops will be recruited to make transit more better. (laughs) Yes, this is, uh, can you tell there's an election?
1: Coming up, Troy, uh, the province announced that they are going to add 100 police officers over the next 18 months in both Edmonton and Calgary, at an estimated cost of about 15 million dollars. And they're also providing each city with a 5 million dollar grant to help keep transit areas and stations, you know, clean, safe, and welcoming. They didn't actually break down, you know, how those officers will be split among the cities, or even give a timeline for beyond that 18 months uh, for when they would be on the streets but that's the news they say they are taking action on safety
0: in the two cities this is pretty savvy politics the LRT in both Edmonton and Calgary is oft maligned about you can't go on reddit in either city and not have endless posts about transit safety and how it's gone downhill and this announcement which is only 15 or 20 million total dollars for a solution that we on this podcast know probably won't solve this issue. Municipal politicians know probably won't solve this issue, but is announced just before an election with a timeline of 18 months. So when this issue doesn't solve it before the election, it'll be because it has an 18-month wrap-up period. And once those 18 months pass, well, the election will have already happened. It's a pretty savvy maneuver to make it look like the province is doing something when I think Mayor Amarjit Sohi and Mayor Jody Gondek might have some different words for how effective this actually is.
1: Yeah, Mayor Sohi, of course, issued a statement about these public safety measures and you know, basically said that he's happy that the province is bringing additional funding to the table, but said that even with this funding you know, there's still challenges that need to be dealt with. And he again reiterated his call and the call that council has made for a long time now for longer term solutions to those root causes, things like supportive housing and resources for mental health and substance use crises. So his response, I would say, try was pretty measured. And I was hoping for something a little bit stronger. I saw the Calgary's mayor, Jody Gondek, was at the press conference, which is, I think, a stronger sign of support than I would have expected uh, from her. Uh, although she was asked a pretty leading question and
0: simply walked away from the mic, which I appreciated. I don't envy the Calgary mayor's position in all of this, because to not show up at the announcement is sort of a, I want to defund the police, I don't think this will help. That would turn off a lot of swing Calgary voters in this election. And I'm sure being a big city mayor, she's seen the UCP downloads onto municipality and isn't quite a fan of all of the policies that have been presented. On the other hand, to show up is, like you said, a pretty strong show of support for the initiative. And at that press conference, she was asked questions by Keenan Bexty the uh, noted not a journalist, formerly of Rebel Media, which she walked away from the podium. Yeah. But then just after, the premier of Alberta answered a question from the same individual, which was a stark and sort of sobering moment that I think really highlighted the schism between the two politicians at the same event where they were announcing the same thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, the 100 police officers, as we know, isn't really going to do anything here. And the lack of detail about when they'll even be on the street and all how many will be in each city and all of that kind of stuff makes the announcement somewhat less impactful than I think it might otherwise have been. But there was one thing that really caught my eye, Troy. Alberta's government is encouraging the city of Calgary and the city of Edmonton to transfer command and control of transit peace officers to their respective police services. And the province said that that would enable police to better coordinate a strategic response. And of course, our police chief, Dale McVeigh, reiterated the same thing he said again and again. He said, quote, centering police as leaders within this work shows a key understanding that we cannot have well-being if we don't have safety.
0: I don't know that we keenly understand that,
1: Mac. Um... <laughs> I mean this is not a this is not a surprise this is obviously the position that we've heard the chief talk about and that we've had the province hint at but to me it was pretty significant that this was explicitly in this announcement the provincial government is encouraging the two cities to do this it's not something either of them have actually talked about doing we have these initiatives where they collaborate and we've built these teams of people that are transit peace officers with police officers with other agencies to support but about Just wholesale giving the police all of that is
0: a bit of a stretch, I think. I think the thing that falls on its face when we talk about that is, in my view, the Edmonton Police Service has, to an extent, abandoned the transit system. We saw it with the downtown reallocation of police officers before. The problem isn't necessarily that EPS doesn't have the officers to enforce in downtown or enforce on the transit system. It's that they simply choose not to. And then use it as political fodder for the Edmonton Police Association to attack the mayor and attack city council and demand funding increases. But these funding increases are never connected to actual enforcement on transit. And there's no way for city council to direct funds to support it. So I think to have an organization like the EPS who has quite noticeably in the city of Edmonton ramped down enforcement on these particular areas in the past half-decade, decade or so, to transfer all of our enforcement resources that we've dedicated and hired specifically for transit to them on their unilateral direction seems counterintuitive to what we've been trying to accomplish to clean up the mess that some might argue the EPS might have made themselves. Well, certainly have contributed to anyway,
1: right? Another thing the province announced was $8 million over three years for these things called police and crisis teams, PACT teams, which is where police officers are paired with mental health uh, therapists from AHS uh, who respond to 911 calls. And this funding will increase the number of teams in Edmonton from six to 18. So that's one small thing that is uh, a good change. aimed at uh, yeah, addressing the, the mental health part of this at least and, and having, you know, not just be police, be the people responding, but police alongside, you know, somebody who's trained uh, to deal with those those issues.
0: Yeah, we were criticizing a lot of this announcement. That's unequivocally a good change. Maybe some people would like to see the police part of that diminished. But this is positive from where we are to uh, closer to where we want to go. I think one thing that I specifically noticed in this announcement that I thought was pretty great and probably the most impactful part is the $5 grant that both Edmonton and Calgary will be individually receiving for cleaning. It's just to clean up transit station. And this isn't some sort of like coded dog whistle language about evicting people. This is like for mops and sponges because our transit stations are quite dirty, whether it's because of, you know, drug paraphernalia or human feces or dirt because boots have dirt on them. A clean transit station is a welcoming transit station. I truly believe that a lot of the perception of lack of safety that Edmontonians have is because... While transit has had an increase in uh, houseless individuals on transit, in the same period, it's also had an increase in just being dirty. We've had cuts to cleaning services, and I think people just feel a little bit grimy. And if things were cleaned up, I don't know. I think perceptions of safety would go up just the same, even if nothing else changes other than some mops ran around. Well, I
1: have to disagree on this point. I mean, I don't think that uh, mops is going to number one, cost five million bucks. And number two, make a material difference to the experience of people walking through transit stations. I mean, it is not that the floor is a little bit dirty. It is that there are people who are unhoused, who are sleeping and doing drugs on the, on the ground. And $5 million for cleaning doesn't do anything to help those individuals and to to get them into a better situation. So I'd rather see them put the money into addressing those root
0: causes than these you know, layer upon layer of Band-Aids on top. I suppose that's fair. I, unfortunately, uh, have cynically written off the UCP taking action on those fronts. You may be right to do that. And speaking of cynicism, you know there's an election coming. You mentioned it off the top. I don't know if it's a surprise at this point. But this announcement has been used both by the UCP and the NDP as electioneering for who does and doesn't support police. And I wanted to specifically highlight City Council, who Edmonton City Council, despite the majority of them indicating in the Taproot survey when they were elected that they wanted to either freeze or reduce police funding, they've increased police funding in the city of Edmonton. Repeatedly. (laughs) Repeatedly. And I saw a tweet from uh, Councillor Erin Rutherford, who was one of the people in the Taproot survey who said that funding should be reduced to the Edmonton Police Service. And she said in response to Premier Danielle Smith's announcement, quote, the only one that defunded the police has been the UCP where we've had to fill gaps, like my motion to address taser deficit. EPS had year-over-year increases, and here's my blog with facts on police funding. And it went up again for 2023, end quote. And I just, I sat there reading this, and all I could think is, Counselor, if you committed in your campaign to reduce police funding, and when another order of government does it for you, you undoing that and instead boasting about increasing the police funding counter to what you said multiple times, I don't think it's quite the dunk that you think it is. The tenor of city council's discussions around police, despite all of them seeming to think we need to reduce police funding, maybe they never planned to do it at the start. Maybe enough time has passed that they simply have stopped pretending that they ever planned to do it. But I can't stop seeing Edmonton City Council forgetting what they told voters they wanted to do when they won their office. I think it's fair to criticize
1: this because you're right, simply saying, oh, the province took away this funding for photo radar. What are we going to do? Let's make a motion to go and get the money from over here. Is not really doing anything to follow through on that campaign promise. And I should just point out, though, she's one person on council and Council Rutherford has been among the councillors who have asked the hardest questions anytime police funding has come up. She's been the one that has been, you know, pushing pretty consistently for if not reducing the police budget, at least, you know, finding a way to rein in the spending a little bit and stop some of the the increases. So I appreciate the the sort of approach that she's brought to that. As I said, she's one
0: person, she can't do it all by herself. Of course, cops aren't the only way to fix transit. If a city press release is to be believed, regular Edmontonians can help with one strong voice uh, campaign to, Quote, empower and educate bystanders. Uh, Mac, this announcement went over a little bit like a lead balloon this week. What was going on here? Yeah, this is a bystander
1: awareness campaign. It's aimed at reducing gender based violence and harassment in transit and other public spaces. And the city said it's part of a broader, multi layered effort to create you know safer places on transit but it feels a little like you know the you should wear reflective clothing when you're out walking a part of the vision zero campaign right i mean transit safety and and the perception of safety has been in the news significantly over the last several months has been at council with reports from the Transit Service Advisory Board and others uh, talking about how people don't feel safe. And we hear this rhetoric again and again from either the province or the police or the councillors about how we go we should go about addressing this. And then to ha- to be told it's kind of up to you as individuals to be empowered and educated, and that will solve the problem. Yeah,
0: it didn't really hit the mark, I would say. In a Reddit AMA that Councillor Aaron Paquette did this week, Uh, He was asked the question about the release of this communication strategy. And he said, quote, the timing for the rollout of that comms was, in my personal opinion, epically terrible, end quote.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think he's right. It was pretty epically terrible. Uh, I mean, I think they could have read the room and, uh, and realized that maybe there's a better time to release this. I mean, having said that, it is just one thing they're doing, as you point out. And, you know, alongside all of the other changes that have been made, probably there's little harm in having uh, an awareness campaign, you know, such as this. I don't think, like the former Edmonton Police Service officer that CTV interviewed, this is going to lead to a whole bunch of vigilanteism, And I don't agree necessarily with Councillor Tim Cartmel, who said, basically, at this time, we should just be calling the cops. We shouldn't be, you know, taking direct action or, or doing anything that this, uh, this campaign would advise uh, individuals to do. I think it can be a little bit more holistic than than that. But yes, the timing probably could have been reconsidered.
0: Okay, Max, so the city has released this. We've talked about the timing, but we haven't actually talked about what they said. So what what's the takeaway? What are bystanders supposed to do if they see something?
1: Well, they basically have two sets of tips here. So if you feel safe intervening, if you witness some sort of harassment, uh, you could be direct, Call it what's happening, ask the person being harassed if they're okay, de-escalate, try and calm people down, and then distract, try and draw the perpetrator's attention away from the situation, you know, pretend to answer your phone, do something to distract them. If you don't feel safe intervening, then they recommend you delay, so wait until The situation's over, and then follow up, make sure the person who's being harassed is okay. You know, document, record the time and place, and all that kind of information. So you could provide that later, uh, and then delegate. So talk to another bystander, find uh, ETS security. If it's an emergency, of course, call nine one one. That's their tips on how to safely intervene, and that's what this campaign is going to be trying to educate people about.
0: And on those surface, those aren't horrible tips, but none of the items in there is going to get housing for anyone. This is like we said before, absolutely not a solution. If this was one part of broad systemic action, yeah, I could see it. We just need to make sure that the rest of the system is operating around this.
1: The city does say this is evidence-based. It's based on some research that came about in a sort of roundabout way from the city joining back in 2016, the United Nations Women's Safe Cities and Safe Public Spaces Global Program. There was a committee that was struck to make Recommendations on how to make public spaces, including transit, safer, and in a as I said roundabout way, that kind of led to these things. And so they did this research in 2022. They looked at existing bystander campaigns. They looked at how much knowledge transit riders currently have about how to intervene safely, Uh, and then they you know looked at uh, motivations for and barriers for people wanting to intervene. And that's how they arrived at these actions. I mean, if everybody knew this information. Probably that would be a good thing overall on transit, but certainly feels like maybe something we could be doing when the root causes are a little bit
0: more under control. Mac, I thought this next piece of news, uh, positive news about LRT, would be presented just that, positive. We don't normally get positive LRT news. So I was incredibly disheartened when the discourse around this turned very sour this week. So the first piece of news is that we heard that the Metro Line's first expansion, the Blatchford Stations, are ahead of schedule and expected to open just next year in 2024. And then Edmonton Journal columnist Keith Gerine piped up to tell us why this is in fact a
1: bad thing and his argument is that this is shaping up to be a quote a train to nowhere and you know we've talked on the show before about how far behind the original plan Blatchford is in terms of having housing there and people living there and and all of that so to have a station open there next year given that there are so few people living there for example, only 45 homes were occupied as of October 2022, you know, it does maybe seem a bit strange. But on the other hand, this is part of our LRT build out. This has been planned for a long time. And eventually, there will be a lot of people living there. So I'm not so sure why it's bad that this is done in ahead of time. I will say, expect it to open in 2024. We've heard about LRTs being expected to open (laughs) on any given date many times before, and I'll believe it when I see it. But, you know, in general,
0: I think you're right. This should be good news. And of course, this is the Metro line. This train literally started the, I don't believe the expected to open date trend for the LRT. But something that you said right here, uh, that it was strange that we'd open up a LRT station for a place that only had 45 homes currently. I want to interrogate that feeling a little bit because... I think that is at issue here. And you're right. It is strange in Edmonton for us to do that. But I wonder why that is. Would it be strange to build roads in a development that didn't quite yet have any houses? If Blatchford is intended to be a transit oriented development, would it not make sense to build the train there first? And then build the housing around it. This is what they do in China for their mass transit rails. They build the train where they want the future cities to be. And then the cities appear around the train and go figure the people that initially live there need fewer cars. If we didn't build the train before people moved into those houses, those people in this urbanist utopia would be required to have cars. They wouldn't have access to public transit. Why... I am just baffled with the entire premise of Blatchford being this transit-oriented, sustainable community, why we would miss the point so clearly. Yeah, 100%, you're
1: right. And uh, I suppose the more accurate way to say that it seems strange is that it seems strange given the historical context of Edmonton. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think you know the easy answer for why you would take such a negative view on this is that a lot of people who read that newspaper like cars and this will get them riled up maybe i don't know uh, i think you're right though this this should be a model for how we do this for how we build out city plan it can't be that we build the houses as you say require people to have cars and then promise that they're going to get transit at some point in the future having the train there in the first place
0: will greatly impact the way that that neighborhood builds out. And of course, this is the next step on the train going further north to Campbell Road station in St. Albert. And, you know, people who love their cars, they love their St. Albert. And getting a train to St. Albert would be a huge milestone. And another milestone was passed on that this week with council passing first reading on a borrowing bylaw for the next stage of the metro line to, in fact, get to Campbell Road, which passed 12-1.
1: Yeah, this was a borrowing bylaw to, I think it was about $20 million to borrow money for the next stage, which is around planning and design to go beyond Blatchford
0: into Campbell Road. And only Jennifer Rice opposed this this week. In other train news, as of Thursday, April 6th, when we're recording this, Valley Line is still not open, still behind schedule. So we've got ahead of schedule, we've got behind schedule. Do we have a Goldilocks train, Mac? Do we have something that's right about on schedule? Well, coming up at council next week, or committee next week, is a report about the
1: Capital Line South extension. So this is from Century Park to Ellerslie Road. The report there says that construction is, major construction is set to start next spring. So it's more or less on track in terms of schedule. But the billion-dollar project, I think it is, is facing uh, significantly escalated costs. And so what council's being asked to do is consider a few options to try and reduce the budget. A couple of those things might be buying fewer light rail vehicles so the original plan was to buy some enough to have some spares in case uh, you know there's maintenance and things and so they recommend potentially cutting some of those deferring some things making the garage a bit smaller you know building out the expansion to the heritage park and ride some point in the future so they're trying to cut costs on it to keep the budget sensible uh, on that project
0: so not quite a goldilocks because unfortunately while being on time it is over budget uh, edmonton Can't have it all, Troy. And of course, with transit, we'd like to have it all. The best case scenario is a train or bus comes every five minutes, 24 hours a day. We're not really getting to that utopia, but... This week, we did hear that there are boosts to off-peak transit service coming.
1: Yeah, our reporter who was on the show a little while ago, Colin, was at Transit Camp, which was held last month, and he learned about some information related to off-peak service hours. And I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, Carrie Houghton-McDonald, who's the branch manager of ETS, spoke at the event, of course, and he was talking about this boost in off-peak service hours. So during the budget Council had approved funding for 500 hours per week of expanded off-peak service. And this is going to be the first time in a decade that there's been any sort of increase in those off-peak hours. And and McDonald said, you know, it's not a huge difference. It's a relatively small number overall, but uh, it sort of reflects that riders' behaviors have changed. There's less uh, demand for service during peak times and more demand in sort of off-peak
0: hours, uh, and that it's important to build for that increased ridership in the future. You know, Mac, it's funny. You tend to take the lead on stories like this because I'm not super interested because I don't, Take the bus. I know I like to harp (laughs) on this podcast about, you know, the great thing of transit. But 99% of the time, if I can take the bus to somewhere in Edmonton, it is faster and cheaper for me to bike there. And that's usually because I'd have to wait for the bus for 20 minutes, for half an hour. And we never really talk about induced demand when it comes to transit. We talk about it all the time with cars where we're building a new freeway. But I noticed in this story, Colin talked to Emily Grise at the University of Alberta And she made the very salient point that service hours is basically the inducing demand for transit. The more service hours you have, the more people that are able to use the service and more able to use it at all times of the day. Because if you can induce enough demand that a person can give up or reduce their car usage, they will be transit users at all times of the day rather than just one time of the day. So it's, it's really exciting to see this off-peak increase. Like I always believe, the best transit service is the one that you don't have to think about. You don't ever have to look at a schedule or a map. You just go to the bus stop and you get on the bus because you know it's going to show up.
1: Absolutely. And this if this gets us a, st- a step closer to that, then, you know, fantastic.
0: And of course, the transit system is a multifaceted part. There's buses, there's trains, there's bikes, there's walking, and... For the last five years in Edmonton, there have been Scoot Scoots, and the Scoot Scoots are back, Mac. Yeah, we're recording this on Thursday, April 6th, and I saw the first scooters out on the bike lane
1: this morning. Uh, Bird and Lime have uh, brought back their scooters for the the 2023 season. You know, Edmontonians love these scooters. They took, last year, almost 400,000 trips, and about half of those started or ended downtown. So that's pretty interesting. And it's no surprise they're back when uh, you know the number of rides in Edmonton keeps increasing year over
0: year. There's going to be an endless amount of articles about people are scooting on the sidewalk. They almost hit my grandma or these have blocked my path for a wheelchair that was trying to roll around. And all of these, you know, are legitimate concerns, but they're not anti-scooter concerns. 400,000 trips last year, Mac. These are an unadulterated success story. It is incredible and this has exceeded my wildest dreams. And I think it is important that we counteract some of that language and truly just communicate how much of an unabashed success the scooters have been at allowing people to either leave a car at home or allowing people like teens who may not be able to get around and experience the community to do that, to experience the city, and to engage in local culture and local businesses. This has been a hugely enabling tool and I am super stoked to see it grow. I would love to see better implementations like, for example, corrals and dedicated parking, maybe by removing some car parking stalls. But we really need to frame our discussions on improving the scoot scoots around just how incredibly successful this program has been. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know,
1: on my street, we do get a corral. There is a e-scooter parking spot uh, both on the south side and the north side of Jasper Avenue, so there are a few of them. But I agree that's something that could expand. The other thing I'd like to see expand is e-bikes. So those kind of appeared for the first time last year in Edmonton, and only about nine percent of all of those trips were e-bikes. Most of them were e-scooter, but I expect that'll increase, you know, significantly this year and, and continue to increase because it was there wasn't as many of them last year. But I think they were, um, you know,
0: pretty exciting for people to be, have access. Yeah, of course, long distance on the scooters. They can only go 18 or 19 kilometers an hour. It can be a significant period of time if you've got to cross the river and go from downtown to South White. So the e-bikes really do allow for a different type of travel. Well, Mac, we talked last week about the $70,000 podcast and this week about the ill-timed bystander campaign that came from the City of Edmonton Communications Department. But the Communications Department continues to make news, and this time they're making themselves the news. The Deputy City Manager of Communications, that's Catherine uh, Owen, has left the city. Uh, along with her, Kimberly Armstrong, who's the Deputy City Manager of Employee Services, as well as two high-ranking uh, communications people, Glenn Kubish and Mary Sturgeon, have all left the city. We don't quite... Know why, but the fact that it's all the same sort of non answer post that they made on their various LinkedIn or in comments to the journal leads me to believe that this was a structural change and it was coming from the city manager's office.
1: A little bit of a house cleaning, it seems like. And there could, you know, we could speculate on any number of reasons why this might be the case. A pretty obvious one might be that, uh, as we've talked about on the show before, The city right now is tasked with finding some significant cost savings. The OP-12, the amendment from the the budget that asks for $60 million in cuts, it's got to come from somewhere. Perhaps, you know, salaries of uh, senior employees is is one of the sensible areas for that to come from. There's that context. There's, you know, also, uh, you know, as you pointed out, some of these snafus and and who knows if that's related or not or if it's a a result of having you know some turmoil in the uh, in the departments around this time so uh, interesting either way to to note that there's some pretty senior people responsible for communications all being let go around the same time. And I think that m- makes it uh, an interesting
0: thing for us to pay attention to and to keep an eye on. Yeah, and like we said, we don't quite know very much about this, but I assume, you know, Taproot's pretty good at what they do. We're going to be investigating this over the next few weeks and hopefully we can find out something interesting and new. And this is interesting because I subscribe to a lot of news. I have to because I have to do this podcast each week. But The Pulse, Taproot Edmonton's email notification daily update, was the first person that broke this story about Katrin Owen leaving the city of Edmonton. I'm not sure if Taproot was first to the mark, but at least by my count, you were. And that's one of the great things about The Pulse. It gives me the news right to my email. And Mac, yes, this is an ad for (laughs) Taproot Edmonton. Tell us about The Pulse.
1: Yes, I think we're really good at paying attention and paying attention does pay dividends. You find out really interesting things that help us understand the city better. So The Pulse is our weekday news briefing. It tells you what you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning You'll get short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of all of our beats, business, tech, food, and, and much, much more. We also try to include a little bit of whimsy, a little bit of delight in the Pulse from time to time. One of those things you'll you'll find is a regular feature called a moment in history. We go back in time and look at something from Edmonton's past And you can subscribe for free
0: to The Pulse and get it every day to your inbox. It's at taprootedmonton.ca. Well, that's it, Mac. This is our first week as a solo go-it-on-your-own podcast of Taproot Edmonton, no longer with the Alberta Podcast Network. We're, of course, there from the beginning. Um, Karen Unland, the creator of the Podcast Network, also your co-founder at Taproot Edmonton. It's pretty familial. It is. It is. Yep. Uh, But we do not plan to go anywhere, despite the APN sunsetting. We will be here in your feed. For many, many weeks to come. And until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're speaking Speaking Municipally. municipally.